Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is speaker, facilitator, workshop leader, and executive coach, Mark Lesser. He has an MBA degree from New York University. He's the author of four books, including Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. He's the director of Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, the first Zen monastery in the Western world, and helped develop the world-renowned Search Inside Yourself program within Google. In this episode, we get to know Mark and how to become an emotional Jedi. We talk about integrating mindfulness in the workplace. We learn that there's no right way to meditate and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark as much as I did. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. Yeah, you know, it's funny, this word spiritual. I, I would say that I grew up in a very uh, in a very loving household um, and one where I felt tremendously, um, you know, I felt loved and accepted and uh, I was given a really wide pasture uh, to explore. And to me, those things are all spiritual. And, and uh, you know, there's a, maybe that's the foundation for, for spirituality and... Um, and and then for me, I think um, doors really started to open when I was a freshman at Rutgers. And um, I think through coming into contact with a lot of different kinds of people with a lot of different values. And uh, and I also became passionate about reading, which I, I hadn't been, um, uh, I think, um, reading about humanistic psychology. Um, there was a, there was a book by Abraham Maslow called tortoise psychology of being, which was, um, was big. And then, you know, studying, um, my, my, one of my favorite classes at Rutgers was, um, French, German, and Italian literature in translation in which I discovered, you know, Sartre and Camus and, and Hesse and, uh, and that and that led me to study existentialism, and that led me to discover uh, Alan Watts and some of the early books on Zen. And at some point, I I didn't want to read about it. I somehow wanted to experience it, and that that led me to take a uh, a one year leave of absence from Rutgers and go to San Francisco. And uh, that one year turned into ten years of living at the San Francisco Zen Center. Wow. Talk to me about Maslow and how it opened your eyes to self-actualization. Yeah, that's that's the word. You got it. Um, self-actualization. Yeah, that um, I loved, you know, that he that Maslow was studying what it was that seemed to set a small slice of the human population apart in terms of their own freedom, their own emotional freedom, their their ability to feel their ability to be um, effective in the world. And I, I think it, it described, I, I felt, I think, a huge gulf of these people that he was describing and my own self-awareness and lack of self-actualization as a, as a freshman in college. And I felt this huge uh, urge and pull to, to, uh, you know, to say, how, how could I be more, how, how could I feel more? How could I live with more, uh, richness and, and aliveness? And that kind of set me on that, on that path of exploring that, which, you know, I, I had the same questions for 40 years later. Yeah, I like that. It's like you said earlier, it's one thing to read up on these guys and, and uh, their insight, but then to put it into practice that's that's what matters. Were you uncomfortable in your skin before reading that? In a, in a way, I think I think I felt um, you know maybe I felt too comfortable. I think I was comfortable being asleep. Um, comfortably numb, maybe. I was comfortably numb. I was comfortably unaware. I was comfortably un, undeveloped, and um, and I think reading reading Maslow and reading. Um, you know the other books I, I about people who were exploring made th- those made me uncomfortable, and um, and I and I 
in a good way. And I, I think I was uh, seeking and searching for uh, that uh, that discomfort. I needed to be. I needed that. I needed to be poked and prodded and stretched. Yeah, that feeling of discomfort is a sign of your mind expanding. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think of it that way. It feels rather, you know, rather paradoxical, right? Who wants to be, who wants to be uncomfortable? But yet, I look at you know, I look at all of the um, major transitions in my life. I think were at some point uh, reaching a place where I felt that my my world had gotten too small, and I somehow needed to to um and and it was uncomfortable to step out of those various worlds into some other into some other place but that that seems i think that's that's the practice i think you know growth spurts are uncomfortable yep and realizing kind of acknowledging when we're uh when we have fallen asleep or when this is not you know it's a little bit like um uh, you know, it was like 13 or 14 years into running my first company. I started a, a publishing company called Brush Dance, which I loved. You know, it was just fantastic, uh, fantastic experience. And then that moment of walking into my office and this voice, hearing this voice that said, my heart isn't here anymore. And and that was like no don't don't pay any attention pay no attention to that voice that would mean change, uh, but I couldn't I couldn't ignore it. <laughs> now, now when you say the voice that that's an inner voice telling you that it was time yeah. to move on. Yeah, there's that feel that that inner voice that that strong feeling that this this is no longer the right place for me and and um and it was right or it's funny it was right around that time where I had breakfast with a uh, a mentor of mine who uh you know looked at me and said it's time for you to leave this company this 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 um being you know being the CEO of this company is too small too small for you you have larger things to do with your your life and and of course I I looked at her and said like what <laughs> and and she said well that that you'll have to figure out but uh interesting conversation for me. Right. So that sets you on this path of getting to know yourself and what it means to go beyond yourself. You know, right. Those are your, you're quoting, quoting one of my favorite um, teachers from the 13th century, good old uh, Dogen, who was the founder of Zen in Japan, who, who said, right, to study, to study the way is to study the self and to study the self is to go beyond the self. And, and, um, I just love that as a prescription for, for practice, kind of a very, uh, kind of simple, straightforward, <clears throat> aspirational way of, of, uh, describing what I think these practices are, are about. Yeah. So to describe what that means, going beyond yourself, it's connecting with something bigger. What is what is the bigger picture here? Yeah. Well, I think it's in some way it's going beyond our usual um, grasping for for safety. Uh, it goes. It means about going beyond maybe our our usual uh, fears and and greed. And and what I like about I like those that language of going beyond because. You know, I think um, there's. It's not that we're going to eradicate our our own fears and our own grasping. Those. I think that's. I think that's part of the part of our humanness is that those things are are in us. But then to recognize them, this is the study. I think to study them, and then to be able to not be so tossed around by them, right? And to be able to um, to see our own, um, you know, the, the richness that, uh, is within us and is within everything and is within the world. And to, uh, it's a kind of, um, open, an open heartedness, uh, right in the middle of whatever our, um, you know, fears and greed might, might be. Mm -hmm. We have to know ourselves first or love ourselves first before we can go beyond or spread that love outwardly. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a constant, um, on, ongoing, 
ongoing process. And I think the, uh, you know, the, the more that we go beyond the self, I think the, the more we see, you know, the, our own, uh, our own shadows and limitations. And at the same time, the more I think we can feel, um, you know, the, the, the possibility of, of healing and growing and, and connecting, connecting with, um, connecting with ourselves and connecting with others in a, in a more, uh, with more depth and more authenticity. For sure. So I want to talk more about your earlier years. You've done a lot. You've developed a, and implemented mindfulness training classes at Google, known as Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. But I wanted to, to learn more about when you were head cook at the Tassajara Zen Monastery. Yeah, those were, um, those were fantastic years that, in fact, I, I, I recently went back and did a, um, after I left, I left my role as the CEO of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. And, and I had one of those, um, it was actually kind of a jarring experience of uh, deleting the various uh, re repeating meetings from my calendar, um, you know, because I had, I had, you know, I know, seven or eight people reporting to me and taking those off my calendar and other kind of the Search Inside Yourself uh, ongoing meetings. Uh, removing them and there was this big suddenly my calendar uh, for the following year was uh, there was a big space and and I was surprised that one of my first thoughts was oh I could go do a three-month practice period at Tassajara and um, and I, end, I ended up uh, doing that I went back it'd been right more than more than 30 years since I had when I was in my in my 20s I did nine three-month practice periods, um, which were life-changing to to do that that um, that in-depth practice and and so much of so much of uh, the life at um, at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center is is work. You know that every day there was um, a, a work period and and it was this uh, incredible sense of work as as practice. And um, and I, I found myself in a variety of leadership roles. So it was not only work; it was you know working in a leadership a leadership uh, role in the midst of this sense of uh, practicing work as as knowing yourself and going beyond the self, and uh, work as uh, as service and as um, the sense. I think there is a sense of tremendous joy the, the work work was just so much fun and so rewarding in a way that um I, I you know and then re reading all of these statistics about the lack of joy and lack of meaning that people felt in in the you know in the united states and in the world i that was my uh i think i had this uh kind of aha that i think there's something i i was feeling and discovering and learning that i could perhaps offer to the to the world outside of the zen center was one of the things that was happening for me how old were you i was in my late 20s had you done anything prior to that like maybe like a vipassana retreat or something a little less brief than nine months no well this was like 10 years, you know, <laughs> um, I'm not, this was, um, uh, so this was during, this was the, the time in my life. This was from when I was in my early twenties to early thirties and living at the Zen center and working in the Zen center kitchen. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I had, um, I had worked a lot, you know, I grew up, I grew up in New Jersey in a Kind of a working class family and i had lots and lots of work experience you know from uh you know from being um i, I spent i spent a couple summers working uh as an exterminator in new jersey i worked in hospital laundry rooms uh, i was a golf caddy for many many summers uh, but those were all you know kind of um, a very different experience of work than being in the uh you know in the zen monastic world i think those those were not those were not all that enjoyable although even then i i felt i felt something about the 
the possibility of um, aligning with one's uh, values and work, even in those very odd jobs that I had done. You were in your late 20s. You were responsible for overseeing a restaurant-quality kitchen and feeding all the students and the guests. And you discovered you were really there to support a culture of, of mindfulness practice. Tell me more. Yeah, yeah. that. But I think that was, um, you know, I was really lucky in that uh, at the San Francisco Zen Center, the, the kitchen practice was a highly evolved practice. Um, uh, that there were um, incredible sense of kind of structure and um, yeah, just basic um, I- incredible sense of uh, w- w- there was there was like well structured training for how to work in the in the kitchen, both in very practical ways from things like you know how vegetables were cut and how you treated knives and cutting boards and and um and a sense that and a sense that you were there to practice and it was this this ongoing very much kind of practical and aspirational sense of bringing mindfulness practice bringing meditation practice into everything that you did from the you know from the food preparation to how you were working with with other other people and it was just something very kind of very very special and even you know and even today i go i go back i go back every i've been going back every year and at least spending a little you know just kind of dipping in to uh that that sense of working that experience of working at the tasahara kitchen and then i found it was interesting uh interesting that when i found myself developing trainings in google mindfulness and emotional intelligence trainings in google I found myself very consciously kind of drawing from what what was it about that experience in the uh, in the Tassajara kitchen that I could bring into developing these uh, mindfulness trainings at Google. Yeah. So you touched on the structure in that kitchen, and I think that's so important, and it translates into our daily lives because with structure, it kind of removes some of that chaos and some of the unpredictable nature of life and allows us to be more present. Yeah, it's a um, – I'm trying to think of the – you know, in, in Zen practice, they often talk about kind of, um, you know, formal formal structures – as a way of cultivating a more flexible mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one, it's one thing to see like Jiro dreams of sushi and his zen-like nature, but I imagine running a busy kitchen while remaining relaxed was probably a real challenge, but it also forces you to be in the now. Yeah, it was, um, it was there was a real sense of, uh, often a sense of intensity and a sense of urgency. And, you know, it wasn't unusual that... Um, Things would go wrong, as in any kitchen, with you know something, uh, you know the, the the potatoes not being cooked when it was time to serve the meal, or uh, or someone not showing up because they were they were sick, and um, and you were shorthanded in the kitchen. A lot a lot like any anyone experiences, I think, in in any uh, you know uh, organiza- organiza- organizational life. Um, you know, things, things, challenging things happen, and it, and it's really helpful to be able to draw on particular structures and 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 this and assumptions. And it also teaches you about the importance of focusing on the process, not just the outcome. Definitely, definitely. That's um, yeah. You know, and when I hear process, I'm I find myself translating that on a broader level, an organizational level, into culture. Right, that creating, creating organizational culture and company culture. Why that is is so, um, so essential in terms of um, both the, the 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 character building, the building of trust in the organization, as well as uh, supporting getting stuff done. Another thing that I wanted to touch on with you is is just the term mindfulness in itself. Are you concerned with a misunderstanding of this and also with it becoming more of a productivity hack? I think everything has a shadow side and that 
and that we, um, of course, need to be um, aware of the misuses and shadows of 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 anything, uh, mindfulness mindfulness included, and and of course, um, mindfulness can be used for nefarious reasons, or it can be used right as you're saying, you know, uh, just for productivity and leave out the part about character building. Uh, it can, um, yeah. So, uh, I, I, I have that, I have that concern, but not enough to, you know, to, um, throw it out. You know, <laughs> I think it has, I think there are such, uh, tremendous potential and possibility for, again, you know, to me, to me, um, I tend to think of mindfulness as, you know, the practice of humanness, you know, the practice of heart, heartful, heartfulness, um, which, you know, which includes things like focus and flexibility. Uh, to me, mindfulness is this enormous, deep, wide uh, umbrella of kind of human, uh, human values and human activity that includes studying the self and going beyond the self and includes uh, compassion and and um, and and wisdom um so yeah i i certainly i certainly understand the various um shadows and criticisms of of mindfulness and they're and they're wor- worthy of being uh being aware of yeah for what, whatever reason you are wanting to start practicing mindfulness we're probably going to get a better outcome regardless yeah, you know, I was, um, I was, I just came back from, uh, I was a few days ago at the Mindful Leadership Summit in Washington D.C. and and they actually had uh, on stage a a debate between some of the pro mindful people and the people who are feeling that mindfulness should not be taught. This was particularly, I think, about mindfulness in education. That's interesting because. I mean, not all mindfulness practitioners are CEOs or bosses or teachers, but can't all leaders benefit from practicing mindfulness? Yeah, I, I think so. Again, and this again, this um, what was interesting to me. One of the ahas that I had listening to this debate about, you know, should should mind the 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 the, the, um, the anti mindfulness folks were. Uh, suggesting that mindfulness is a religion and that religion should not be brought into schools and that it's somewhat coercive to bring mindfulness into 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 education uh-huh. and and my my, um, my immediate response when I heard this I kind of uh, my feeling is that um, our education system as it is in most of the United States is probably based on a you know 1850s Calvinism and and based on religious ideas and values that are quite coercive, you know the things that the things like uh, you know bells ringing to, to you know every 50 minutes and periods and and compartmentalizing and that you have to have the right answer again all of this to me is um, I think it's important to look at the underlying assumptions that we have about education and the same is true about the underlying assumptions. I think, I think most of our work cultures, uh, in some way are based on, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s industrial revolution. Um, you know, uh, you know, it was like, thank you. Um, Henry Ford and, and the, um, assembly line, assembly line mentality. And I think the underlying assumption that we should, that the idea of work is to bring is to take the humanness out of it. Mm-hmm. So it's to me, it's, it's rather um, it's kind of funny that there is this uh, it, it's it's a small school, but it's getting a loud voice. People who are suggesting that this is a, you know, a, uh, a, a really nefarious way of bringing religion, bringing Buddhism into into the workplace and into um uh, into education. Yeah, it's, I, I think, again, uh, it, it's um, maybe um, interesting to, to note, you know, the possible possible shadow sides, but I think um, 
I think it's important to note the shadow side that's that's the predominant the predominant viewpoint of our uh, work world and our education systems has a tremendous amount of shadow. Absolutely. And you even touch on this in the book about these common obstacles that you're going to meet when trying to introduce mindfulness into into schools or into the workplace and one of them being fearing change. Yes, I'm glad I'm glad Nick that you're mentioning, you know, I wrote um, I wrote this book, uh, Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, and then these books come out, and and I um, I hadn't read it in a while. I went back because I was at this conference where I was, um, <laughs> and it was interesting to go back and read read my own book, and I and I thought, oh, this is pre- this is pretty good. I like this. <laughs> I, I, I like this book, and I should, uh, yeah, lots of. Um, Lots of uh, interesting ideas, I think, about uh, the potential and roadblocks, and but I think mostly the the importance of um, practice, the importance of mindfulness practice in from a personal perspective and from a work perspective in all, all parts of our lives. Yeah, well, you were definitely on to something. I want to talk to you about introducing this sort of mindfulness practice or the steps that you mentioned in the book into a more intense environment like, for example, the fire service or just with first responders out in the field, yeah. you know, like police and, and EMS. Yeah, um, it's just such a such an important practice, right? It's, I think especially for people like first responders, um, um and and people who are in the um, whether it's you know the the people helping business or in working with others to um, to be to be really aware of how we are influencing others mm-hmm. and and how we are influenced by others and um, and to be able to show up in a way where we're not creating harm where we're not cre- where we're not um, un- unintentionally and um, um, you know, unconsciously, you know, we, we, um, there's always so much happening in, in us, especially in these, um, kind of situations where there's tremendous, uh, urgency and, and need, needing to make a lot of decisions. And we'll, we'll often, uh, we'll often make mistakes. We'll often, uh, cause, cause, you know, cause stress and, pain despite our, our best intentions and and to be really aware of um, of h- how we're doing that so I think so much of this practice is to um, to develop ourselves to have to be able to embody a kind of awareness and and presence and and to see with as much um, to see and act with as much clarity as as we possibly can and to not get all um, all defensive and bent out of shape when we when we are causing, when we make mistakes, when we say the when we say something that that um, is uh, causing discomfort or pain, and to uh, acknowledge it and be able to work with it skillfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a skill that that we have to develop of being in the moment and not letting our emotions get the best of us. So when we are in control, we're less likely to become afraid and react without thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, it's um, uh, it, it some of the paradox there, and again, our lang you know our language is very uh very dualistic, but but in some way, right? We um. You know, we, especially when we're responding, like in emergencies, uh, we want to be able to not overthink things, right? To be able to trust, to be able to, you know, to to move and respond, knowing that we will um, respond in a way that is um, skillful and helpful, and uh, yeah, and and then to be able to, you know. To, to then to be able to learn from, uh, you know, in, in the debrief, how did how did it go, and what what you know what what might I do, and what would I do the same next time? What might I do differently so that we're kind of constantly constantly um, acting in the moment, and then being able to step back and evaluate how did it go, and what can we learn, and where do, where do I need to grow? Where do I need to develop more? 
Yeah, that, that reflection on the experience itself is where the growth comes in. So being a mindful leader is more than just being present. What, what qualities do these leaders share that you've seen? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. I think of, I think of these two big buckets. There's the bucket of uh, what I think of as kind of embodiment or presence, you know, having, having the body of someone who is trustworthy and, and is uh, a, the bo- it's like the body of trust, the body of clarity. And then there's a whole set of skills, right? That uh, being able to um, being able to inspire people, uh, being able to have uh, authentic, difficult conversations when when those conversations are um, are are needed, um, being able to be, um, you know, I I um, sometimes when I'm when I'm training mindfulness teachers, I I think of these various uh, paradoxes like uh, like confidence and humility, right? So I think these are the kinds of qualities of, of a leader. To and it's not about you know finding the the, the the space in the middle. It's like really being confident and really being humble, uh, really uh, being someone who can um, uh, accept you know a kind of acceptance of what is and to work for change. Uh, to be um, to know how to be still, you know, a kind of stillness, um, and at the same time, uh, to be able to have great movement when we when we need to be, you know, when we need to move, you know. And uh, one of my favorite paradoxes is like precision and flexibility, right? Precision and flexibility. So I think for a leader, it's kind of cultivating um, again this combination of embodiment and skills. Yeah, I like that. We need to be precise in our actions because that's always in our control. But then events themselves and, you know, external things are out of our control. So be adaptable. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's this responding, responding, you know, sometimes it's um, uh, kind of cultivating, you know, organizationally uh, a lot. A big part of leadership is uh, helping the organization to be responsive and to be effective change agents, and to see that all of us, you know, I, I sometimes um, I sometimes joke about a uh, a support group that I'd like to form called Buddhists Against Change, you know, because um, change is hard, and I I, I I like I think all of us have. Um, there's a certain resistance that we have to whether it's internal or external, external change. And so much of, so much, I think, um, uh, leadership is paying attention to, um, our own and our others and organizationally how we, we resist change and, and that it takes, it takes real kind of trust and skill and, and kind of a certain kind of love, to be able to um, cultivate and lead change organizationally. Mm-hmm. In the fire service, when you're going to work every day or as a, as a cop, and you don't know what the day is going to bring to you. So it's all about how you respond. It's the, you know, the Zen tradition has a dialogue in which a student asks the teacher, what is the teaching of a lifetime? And the teacher answers an appropriate response. Yeah, that's one of my favorite um, Zen dialogues, right? That, that um, yeah, that there's no... Uh, yeah, the word, the word appropriate, right. And an appropriate response, right. And right. Especially as a, right. A first, a first responder. Um, But even in, you know, in any, any conversation, any, any, any relationship, whether it's personal or business, um, how do we, this question about how can we respond? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, un- to me, appropriate means maybe skillfully and effectively and trust in a way that that engenders trust. Now, have you worked with first responders or, or military with these practices? You know, um, a little bit. My um, uh, my wife actually started an organization called Veterans Path and um, doing uh, doing work with um, with veterans that she's been doing for the past 11 years, and I've 
I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of work with with her and her organizations, and I've had the opportunity to um, uh, to get to know a lot of uh, a lot of veterans, and and sometimes um, in the trainings, I've done I've done a lot of public programs, and and sometimes there will be. I know in uh, one of my I did a program uh, a few years ago in um, in Hong Kong where. There were maybe six or eight people from the uh, Hong Kong police that were there, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, I've had the opportunity to do to do some, and it's a it's a place that I hope I hope I get the chance to do more of. Absolutely. So one one thing I wanted to know is for those people in the leadership position, and they're and they're talking to the new guys coming in the fire service or new fire recruits, what what should our approach be to help them from day one focus focus on meeting the needs of the community and of people and and leading from the heart. Yeah, you know, just um, just that language, right? I mean, what a great, um, uh, you know. Again, I think the 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 core core practice is um, right. Built again, the, the practice of building that kind of self awareness, right? Go, going back to where we started mm-hmm. this conversation with uh, knowing knowing yourself and going beyond the self and. And the, you know the third the, the the next sentence in in that um, that prescription uh, by Dogen is right. It's study the self, go beyond the self, and then it's to um, to to feel your deep you know deep connection that there's no there's less and less separation between you and and others. So this is that I think for um, you know especially I think for um, for first responders, you know, there's a, there's in, in the Zen world, there's this, um, these core vows, right. That, that, um, beings, beings are numberless. Uh, I vow to save them, but it's not, it doesn't mean that, that, um, I'm separate. I, I, I can, I can only help people by feeling our, oneness and our lack of uh, our lack of separateness uh and there's something to me something really profound about that um right to to uh to feel that that deep deep sense of connection and empathy with with the people that we are helping and seeing how you know we're always always learning from the people that we're serving yeah, and I think most public servants they start out that way. You know, when it, when we're talking about the first two practices in your book, we we start out loving the work and doing the work, and we and we have the sympathy. But then, when it becomes kind of like factory work, and you're doing, you know, you're taking all these runs, and you're not getting sleep, it's going to make this an uphill battle. So, how can we kind of keep that sympathy and that compassion? Yeah, well, I think this is um, partly why having Having some kind of a regular practice where we can, uh, I think it's essential to be able to step out of the stream and and um, and have a meditation practice, uh, have a have a way, you know, ideally uh, daily, and if not possible, you know, as whenever whenever is possible to be able to. Um, and I think I think there's something particularly for for first responders to have some kind of a regular practice and also to have the support, the support of, um, you know, to be part of a community of people who are all, uh, you know, agreeing on and aspiring to, uh, to bring that real heart and, and awareness to, to your, to your work. Yeah. Cause it, you know, it's, um, other, otherwise, I think those stre- those stresses and strains can, like as you were describing, I think, I think that kind of um, that kind of burnout or that kind of stress is a clear sign that more uh, more practice is needed, more practice of that combination of um, stepping outside of the stream of of demands and and ongoing support of of others. Mm-hmm. We have to connect to our pain before we can connect to the pain of others. How do? What does that look like in real life? Having the, having the practice of um, of examining and staying with what what is, uh, both in terms of um, whether it's the uh, our, our own 
our own confusion, our own our own fears and greeds, and um, not avoid not avoiding discomfort, not avoiding the discomfort of that um, the imperfectness of our relations, uh, the short and the the pain of the shortness of life, knowing that we are we are here and we are all here for a relatively short amount of time, and that's um, uh, that's painful. That hurts, you know, and. And also that's where the, the real, um, in part, that there's also real uh, juice and love. To, it, it's, a, it's a way of um, not, yeah, just the practice of not avoiding pain. And that's one way to look at um, meditation practice in a way is, is stepping in and going deep into our discomfort and also deep into our own sense of joy and the richness of being human. So, so don't bury the pain. We're not machines. We need to feel the feels. Totally, yeah. You said it's not enough to just be effective without compassion, and it's not enough to be compassionate without effectiveness. That's right. It's easy, And it's easy, you know, it's easy to um, uh, get caught by one side or another, right? It's, you know, it, and there's... Uh, there's and there's natural there is natural tension there. There is just a natural tension between getting stuff done and taking care of people and feeling feeling the the, the heart, you know, there, there's tension between the heart and the head mm-hmm. uh, and and to uh, totally um, be willing to notice it and see it and feel it and work and work with it the best the best that we can and not leave out you know i think um you know on a on a uh, large level i think a lot of the suffering that we're feeling in in the united states is that we have um we've created we've created an economy that leaves out the heart and is much more um one that is um you know, supposedly about kind of maximize, you know, this whole idea of maximizing wealth and leaving out the heart and leaving out the environment is a, is a kind of, it gets to, when taken far enough, it's a kind of, in, it's destructive and it's, it's insane at some point. Yeah, and we've also created this environment where we feel like it's not okay to reach out or to look for a mentor, though it's okay to depend on others. Totally, yeah. Depending on others is a, a core core mindfulness practice, core human practice. Mm-hmm. And that goes for everybody. We need to know our limitations. Yes, our limitations and our possibilities. <laughs> Everything's a paradox. And then the last one is keep making it simpler. We're going back to your book, Accomplish More by Doing Less. Yeah, well, keep making it simpler is the the seventh practice of the seven practices, and and yeah, you know, there's um, uh, I think it's just vital to keep coming back to what's most important, um, you know, and I think there is something about um, it. It's it's simpler when you can recognize, I think, the the tension. Mm-hmm. And not pretend, not pretend that the tension doesn't exist between uh, taking care of people and getting stuff done and and asking the question, you know, what's most important? What do I need to what do I need to pay attention to now? Absolutely. Yeah. You, if we don't recognize that tension, we're more likely to make poor decisions. Yes. Yes. As you, you must find out a lot in the work that you do. Mm-hmm. What spiritual practice has most positively impacted your life? It's it's funny this word spiritual practice because um, to me what is you know what isn't what isn't spiritual practice? Um, I think you know I think that living in community and being part being part of communities I think is is huge. Uh, working with working with others, living with others, um, and. You know, even even though I don't I don't live in I don't live in a community in the in the sense in the way that I did for many years. You know, my my family is a community. Uh, I I I have a um, a weekly meditation group in Mill Valley Mill Valley Zen, which is a community that I'm creating. I'm still connected. 
I'm part of a number of uh, ongoing, ongoing communities. And I think uh, those, commu- those ongoing communities, ongoing support groups, I think it's a, that, that's been one of the most impactful things for me in my own practice. Learn from others, to be vulnerable, to be around other people who are, who are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Speaking of learning, what are you reading right now? I am reading, I'm actually rereading a couple of books, which is one of the things that I, I tend to do. Um, I'm reading, I'm rereading a book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, which is a um, fantastic, fantastic book. Um, I'm also um, rereading a, a book from, I think, that just had its 25th anniversary a book by um, William Bridges called Transitions. Um, I am reading um, a book by Ryan Holiday called uh, Stillness is the Key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are kind of um, my current kind of top of mind books that are uh, reading right now. Those are some great recommendations. Do you have a favorite book for newbies who want to explore the realm of mindfulness? I think a core core book is um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shun Suzuki, a collection of Zen talks. And, and then there's another collection of his uh, called, um, <laughs> I can't believe that the name of that book isn't, isn't um, it is yeah. I I need to be still for a moment. To well, think yeah, I agree it. with you. That that Zen mind, beginner's mind is must. Yeah, yeah. Not always so is the name of the the second collection uh, of talks by Shinru Suzuki. Almost anything by uh, by the um, teacher Pema Chodron. Uh-huh. Um, you know, or, and almost anything by um, Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, yeah, I I also yeah those are all I think um, th- those will keep keep anyone engaged for a while because they've they've all written quite a few books. Thank you for those recommendations. Is there a final boss or challenge that remains to be defeated for you? Yeah, uh, lots of things. You know, in um, uh, in very practical terms, there's um, you know I feel like I'm. Uh, uh, I'm looking at, um, you know, what what form do I want my work to take that can um, that can have the deepest uh, impact in terms of helping other helping other people. Um, what do I um, what do I most what is it that I most love doing? There's a lot of things that I love doing. I'm I'm wrestling with my next book. I'm kind of in it. Like I can feel, feel drawn to this whole realm of uh, writing and expressing myself in, in, in writing. Um, yeah. This ongoing question of um, how do I really want to spend my, my time? How do I want, what do I want to do with this next, this next part of my own, my own life and, and development and, uh, you know, I'm, what, what does my Zen practice look like? Just lots of, lots of questions. What does my leadership, do I, do I want to create another company is, is there, is there for me? So I'm wrestling with a lot of things right now. I really appreciate the, the quality of your, of your questioning. Is there a idea that you're leaning towards for your next book that you can share? Yeah, I'm, I'm really drawn to, um, the topics of power and, and the topics of transitions. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm playing, playing in that realm. And, um, I find myself going back to, um, the work of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and, and making, making that more and more relevant in the realm of a realm of power and the realm of transition. So that's, what's got my attention right now. Very cool. If you could have a drink with anyone in history or a conversation, who would you choose and why? The name that popped into my mind was Martin Luther King. Uh, I just um, I just heard a piece of a speech that he gave about 
um, equality and service and heartfeltness. And, and um, I just think he was um, an amazing human being who I would love to have a drink with. Mm-hmm. You and me both. So what are your daily non-negotiables, things that no matter what will always be done? Meditation practice is a, is a daily non-negotiable. Um, even when things go haywire and I, I can only sit for a few minutes, I, I manage to, to sit every day. Um, oh, uh, some, um, some reading and study and, and some, um, real conversations with people in my life. I love that answer. Yeah. So you lead Mill Valley's in a weekly meditation group. You have multiple books, including your newest seven practices of a mindful leader. Where else should people go if they want to learn more about you and to connect with you? Uh, my website is marklesser.net and it's M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R.net. And I'm doing lots of um, planning and scheduling right now for next year. Uh, on the one hand, trying to keep travel to a minimum. On the other hand, I like travel. So, um, and I seem to get asked to come to different, um, uh, different places. So yeah, my schedule's just, just now really getting solid for next year. Cool. Any parting words for my listeners, Mark? I'll, I'll, I'll end with one of my, uh, favorite quotes, uh, by Wendell Berry said, be joyful though you've considered all the facts. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.